uh, I just want to uh, uh, bring out a verse that kind of illustrates what we've been doing. I'm not going to take too long to explain because we, we did that a few weeks ago. But um, tonight I want to focus on Proverbs 18, verse 13, which says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame to him. This goes well with what we said from Proverbs 15, 28, that says the righteous study to answer. And, of course, the Bible tells us to always be ready to answer uh, give every man rather an answer. So tonight, as we go through this, that's what we're doing. We're studying these answers. We're coming up with the most uh, biblical answer we can uh, to, to answer that question for you. And uh, so we're going to just jump right into this together tonight. And uh, we're also uh, changing functions. I've, I've been more of the answerer, and you've been more of the moderator. But tonight, uh, that's going to switch a little bit here. So... Um, First question that we're going to jump into, Pastor Jeremy and all of you, is how can you take the Bible literally? So there's really, there's, there's really two parts to this question. Because on one hand, we can talk about people who don't believe in the Bible at all and question its, its reliability and its, its validity and how you know that you can trust that that what the Bible says is true. That, that's on one hand of the question. But on the other hand of the question is, even for those who are believers, sometimes when we read through scriptures, there's this, this tendency or this temptation to uh, read into the scripture that, oh, well, that's just an allegory or, oh, that's just a, a, just a figure of speech. And no doubt that there are parts of the Bible that do that. There are, there are definitely parts of the Bible where Scripture tells us it was likened unto, or in, in the explanation of what's being talked about, you know that they're trying to depict something using symbols and that kind of thing. But I do want to caution one thing on that side of the argument before I, I address the first part. We have to be very, very careful not to apply that, that standard of saying that it's just symbolism, it's just metaphor, where Scripture doesn't say that. Because what happens is, is when you arbitrarily begin to choose what parts of Scripture you think is just a metaphor, then you can do that with all Scripture. Then you can say, well, well maybe God didn't actually really create the earth. It was, you know, the Big Bang, and God just kind of started the whole process. And so you, you begin to, to change the infallibility of the word itself. So I just want to caution very strongly on that end. And, and we maybe in another time, or if you have questions specifically about that, about how do we differentiate that as you read through Scripture, that would be a good conversation to have. Um, and, and you can find me later, and we can have that discussion. But now let me just address the, the other, the first part of that is how can we relate to people who maybe don't believe in God or who are really unsure that, that Scripture can be trusted? The first part that is always said is Scripture was written, you know, uh, the, the disciples in the New Testament wrote most of the, the epistles after Jesus was already dead. They didn't write it while it was happening. And so they use that to say that how can we know that that is true? if it was written at a later time. Well, interestingly, one of the pieces that uh, most people look at as being historically accurate from a secular perspective is the Iliad. Yes. The Iliad was written 400 years after the events. And yet, it is still taught often to be a reliable and historically accurate work. Mm -hmm. 
So it's okay to look at a, a secular book that's 400 years after the events. But when we talk about scripture, we actually can be more reliable than that. Because when you look in the New Testament, all of the New Testament documents were written by people who were living during the time of Jesus Christ. Now it is true that like, for example, in the book of Luke, that Luke wasn't walking with Jesus during that time, but Luke had access to the disciples who did walk with Jesus and to Mary herself also. So his account can be accurate because he got it from people who had firsthand experience of the events that took place. Um, I'll spill my water here. Okay, the, the, some other things to really consider is this. If you look at the overall writing of Scripture, how that was written by numerous authors over thousands of years, the fact that all of Scripture flows in such a way that not only does it reference itself in numerous places over many, many times, but that nowhere within Scripture do we find an actual contradiction. To me, in my personal feeling on that is there's no way that mankind under his own wisdom or own knowledge could put together a work written over thousands of years by numerous different people, many of which never saw the other person, and create a document that never contradicts itself and has a literary style that lends itself to a story that you can go backwards and forwards and find references in both directions. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the allegory uh, versus literal, like in a text. Uh, one of the things that I've often seen is when the scripture says, and I saw something that was like unto a blank. Well, that's language indicating that what John, the revelator, or Daniel, or whomever is seeing, he doesn't have a frame of reference for what that thing is prophetically. So that is somewhat metaphorical in that regard. However, if he just says, uh, and locusts came up out of the earth, you know, well, there's no as and unto and like. So that's direct language that would indicate that it's literal. So I, I, I like how you brought that out. Uh, and many of you have been inside of my study. And if you haven't, take a look in tonight. On the very back wall behind my um, uh, couch there is a, uh, a frame, or excuse me, a picture that looks like a rainbow. That has 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. Now, what's interesting about this is that spans about 4,000 years of man's history with about 40 different writers, you referenced that, um, who many of them didn't know each other. But they did have access to the scrolls the New Testament did. But, but ironically, a lot of those things were prophetic of what's to come. And so we find the fulfillment in the New Testament. I would also just add to you know, answering that question, two ways that we can take the Bible literally is by faith. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And by experience, the Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Um, and to that point, a man with an argument is always at the mercy of a man with an experience. So I, I think that would, would apply there. Um, anything else you want to add on to that? Yeah, so um, one, of the, one of the difficult things for me in, in, in thinking about this question, and especially the question that we're going to get to here in a little bit, is that the truth is there's so much and so many aspects that we could really talk about, even on just this one topic, to easily fill an entire message, and honestly, probably even an entire 
uh, series of lessons to talk about this. Let me just give you just a couple uh, pieces of data here that will kind of help um, to show the validity of Scripture. And then it's going to pour over into the next question that we get to here in a little bit. First is the fact that there are more than 5,000 copies of the entire New Testament, or at least extensive portions of it. So when we look at a text and where they draw these texts from, we're not looking at one copy of the book that was held by one person that they then took that one copy and wrote the New Testament. When the truth is there are multiple manuscripts from different areas and time periods that are all written from the original source that they can cross-reference and say, oh yeah, this is the same in all of these different manuscripts, and that's how they kind of test the validity. Likewise, when there are there have been, uh, historically, there have been some manuscripts to show up that completely contradict the rest of Scripture. But when, when linguists and historians look at those supposed new uh, texts, they're shown to not, first not be nowhere near as old as the person claimed it to be. And that it was not written anywhere near the literary style of all the other texts. And that's important. There, specifically during the um, uh, oh, like early 300 time frame, there was a group of, of Catholic priests, specifically from the Jesuits, who were so concerned that people were leaving the Catholic faith right. and moving over to the Protestant faith that they were trying to find a way to discredit the argument and, and the message that the Protestants were using. So it just so happened that some of these Jesuit priests one day happened upon a, a text that completely supported their, their theology and went contrary to everything that the Protestants were saying. Later on, it was determined that manuscript was a complete fake, that it was, it was not real. And, and we shouldn't be surprised because that's what the enemy has tried to do throughout all of time is, is to confuse us um, with falsehoods within the scripture. But we know through the multitude of, of available manuscripts uh, of its validity. But even outside of that, when we look at, let's say, the story of the flood. There, so the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Hindus, the Greeks, the Chinese, the Phrygians, the Fiji Islanders, um, Aboriginal Americans, Indians, Brazilians, Peruvians. I, I hopefully you get the point at this, this time. All of them have traditions and stories written of a worldwide flood and almost all of them also say that there was one family that survived. Absolutely. I might just add, uh, put a little plug here. Uh, Our family a few years ago, when Braxton was still living in Kentucky, went out to the Ark Encounter in the Creation Museum. And I've got to tell you, if you ever get a chance to go, you need to go. I wish we would have had a whole more, you know, a whole other week to just stay there because there was so much to see. And the one thing I like about what they've done there is they've proven through archaeology, linguistics, every ology practically that's available, uh, you know, that the Bible is accurate, so on and so forth. Uh, but it's a great experience. So, and that is a good segue to our next question. Here we go. You ready for the wind up and the pitch? Our science and faith compatible. All right, so all, all of these lessons, I have not prepared notes. I, um, I mean, I've, I've studied, but you know, it didn't bring with me notes. And, and part of the reason was that is that I wanted to just kind of uh, have a, a conversation type format when addressing these things. But for this specific topic, I did want to bring up a couple notes, uh, hopefully to help keep me on track, because again, this, this is a topic that we could talk really, really in-depth about. Um, Several years ago, 
I was attending a class at, at UNO, and the class was a sociology class. And the, uh, the professor who was teaching this was a, uh, a gentleman who was very, very, very intelligent. He, was, he has a, a doctorate in sociology, um, and he has a doctorate in something else. I can't remember what the other one was. But the way that he ran his class was it was usually an auditorium-style class with between 250 to 300 people sitting in there. And he was very, very blunt in how he addressed people. I remember on the first day of class, as he's going through the syllabus, he turns to this auditorium and says, if you have to use the restroom while I'm speaking and you leave, don't come back. That was, that was how he addressed people. Later on, talking to him, I realized he's actually a fairly nice guy, but he is the type of personality that I'm just going to tell you exactly what I'm thinking, when I'm thinking, and I'm not going to like hide it. So as, we're listening, as I'm listening to this, these lessons, he talks about the evolution of society, right? Sociology, that's what it is, the, 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 the study of society and of groups of people. And he explained that, that society, the way that it has evolved, is essentially man was on their own, and then through evolution, they figured out they, it would be better together in groups, and then that expanded, expanded into where we are now, to where we have countries and cities and all of those kind of things. So I raised my hand one day in the middle of this class, and I... I swear, like, two or three people looked at me like, what are you doing? Like, no one raised their hand in this class to ask questions because he would shoot you down very quick. But I, I just, I had this nagging inside, and I couldn't let it go. So I raised my hand, and, and the professor pointed over to me. He's like, you know, what do you want to say? I said, I have a question for you. He's like, all right. I said, so the whole crux of this class, like, the entire uh, uh, platform for this entire class is built on the idea that evolution, from a Darwinian perspective, is absolutely true. And he says, yes. I says, so, if it is that, that evolution is not true, at least not in the sense that we understand it from Darwin's perspective, doesn't that unravel everything that you were teaching in this class? And you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> and so this, this professor looks at me, and he says, well, do you have a better idea? And I said, yeah, actually I do. And so, oh, man, I wish, I wish I could have, like, taken a picture of this guy's face the way he's looking at me, like, surely you are not saying this in the middle did of the class. Did you pass the class eventually? I did. Okay. I did. And believe it or not, he actually gave me extra credit at the end of the class. So, so where that evolved to was he said, he said, okay, if you have a better idea, would you be willing to come and stand in front of the class and give your perspective of your, or your pers um, idea of it? And I said, Absolutely. He says, all right, I'm going to give you some time. Talk to me after class. I'll give you some time, and you can come and do this. So I met with him after that class, and we started talking about evolution at large and, and, and the different uh, fallacies and problems specifically with it. And so he came back to me a week later, and he said, so I've been thinking about this. And I realized that he says, I realize that I'm not really an expert on evolution. And so I talked to a buddy of mine who's an anthropologist and asked him if he would be willing to debate you over your stance. Now, in hindsight, I probably should have said, well, I don't know we should really do that format, but my pride got the better of me, and I said, yes, let's debate. And it turned from there into, oh, we're not just going to do it in class, we're going to hold it in this auditorium where everybody can come. So we show up, and, and, and he, he names it the Battle of Beginnings, right, because that was the whole context, creation, evolution. So we had this debate, and it, it went well, and I'll, I'll save the whole story for the purpose of getting to this. Um, when we got to the end of the thing, though, there was something that was said by the moderator, by this professor, 
who taught evolution in the form of sociology. After hearing both sides of the debate, he asked one final question to the anthropologist. And he said, you have said many times throughout your presentation that science is never wrong because it's self-correcting, meaning that when new data, new information comes available, the scientific community changes its thought and opinion on it to match the new data. And he says, yes. So he says, is it possible that at some point science will self-correct to support what Jeremy is saying? Amen. And he had to say yes. Well, amen. So I say that because often when we're talking about science, when we're talking about the idea of evolution and these different things, we really need to divide two sections. So first, I'm just going to read to you two definitions that you look up in any dictionary of the word science. And this will make sense here in just a minute. All right, science, a branch of knowledge or study dealing with a body of facts or truths systematically arranged and showing the operation of general laws. Second one, a systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation. Okay, simple enough, right? Straightforward. But the problem is, is that often within the world, in the guise of, of uh, science, there's one more behind everything. Um, within the guise of science, they use that term science in a way that doesn't actually match with its definition to try to disprove God. So let's just look at one specific thing that, that shows where... Um, in, in 1929, Edwin Hubble, hopefully everyone knows who Edwin Hubble is, inventor of the Hubble telescope, um, brought astronomy forward great leaps um, in what they could see and understand. He discovers in 1929 that the universe is expanding. At that time, that was revolutionary. No one really had, had believed that to be true, and after this, everyone was like so amazed and astonished, and, and Edwin Hubble, of course, has become a, a mainstay within a lot of scientific classes that, the, that the, the universe is expanding. And yet, in 700 BC, there was a gentleman by the name of Isaiah who wrote this, God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. If you go back and look at what's actually written there in the original Hebrew, and any of the, the Hebrew scholars will tell you that it is not a he did it and it's done, but that he is doing it, meaning that it is still an ongoing process of God laying out the heavens. So long, long, long before Edwin Hubble noticed that the universe is expanding, Isaiah knew it without a telescope because he had the source right. of creation right. to get that information from. All right. So let's, let's look real fast on this. Why then, why is mankind so obsessed with disproving God, with trying to, to deny anything in Scripture, trying to look at any way they possibly can to discredit what Scripture says? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us, and I'm not going to read through this right now, but at a later time, go back and look in 2 Peter chapter 3. It warns that in the last days that, that people would be scoffers and lovers, uh, not lovers of the truth. But it says very specifically that man would be willingly ignorant right. of two things. Right. 
First, that God created the heavens and the earth. That mankind would be willingly ignorant of the creation by God. And then the second thing that mankind would be willingly ignorant of is the flood. Now, if you don't believe that that has actually happened, let me read a quote to you. And this is from Dr. George Waltz, who is an evolutionist and professor emeritus of biology at the University of Harvard and was a Nobel Prize winner in biology. So, by the world standard, an authority on the topic. Listen to what he says. There are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation, uh, um, spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a creative act of God. And we say, woo, this, this scientist, he got it. He figured out that, that God was right. Except that he goes on to say, I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. You see, if the world accepts that God is the creator, they must also accept that it is God who determines man's purpose. And if the world accepts that the evolution or at the, that the flood as counted in, in, in Genesis is true, they must also accept that sin has consequences. But mankind and her flesh does not want to do that. So they actively, willingly work against Scripture so that they can go on living in sin and try to avoid the conviction they feel within their hearts. Absolutely. And I want to just read this definition again, especially part two of science. <clears throat> Systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation. Well, we see that, you know, humans still reproduce humans. If you plant, you know, apple trees, you grow apples. If you plant corn, you grow corn, and so on and so forth. We still see that happening today, so it's observable, it's, you know, repeatable, etc. cetera. Um, but I want to ask a, a follow-up question and get your, your thoughts on this. Because I think a lot of times people then separate uh, those science things and, and they claim that because there are miracles in the Bible, uh, things that are, you know, how did God part the Red Sea? How did the Jordan River part? Um, you know, how did a bush burn and not consume, et cetera, and so forth? Um, and so they lump all that together thinking that because of that, they can't explain it. Now, I've got an answer, but I want to hear what your answer might be regarding the difference between the miraculous versus the scientific. The, the, I guess the, uh, the, the immediate answer that comes to my mind is simply this, is that God does not operate outside of his nature. Right? Bible tells us that God cannot lie. So therefore, if God says that he created the earth, for example, in, in six days, the whole process of creation... 
Some would then say, well, 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 yeah, I know it says six days, but really maybe God did it all through just one act and then the rest just happened, evolved from there. Well, well, that actually contradicts God creating everything and just tries to boil it down to saying God just started the ball in motion and then everything through processes went from that place. Versus in, in, in the act of miracles, there are things that we don't always understand and I think there are things that we cannot understand in our human and finite mind. I believe with all my heart that, God's, that God sits outside of time, that God is at the end and at the beginning. But I can't truly comprehend like, what that really means, right? Because we have no example of that. I have no way to, to, to break that down in my mind and say, I, I fully understand exactly what that means. I believe it. The scripture says it. But it doesn't mean I totally comprehend it. But the thing with miracles is, is that, first of all, it still happens. It's not that something that happened in the Old Testament and we say, well, it happened then, doesn't happen now, maybe it wasn't real. We see still God operate in that same manner. And that is because God is consistent in who he is and how he operates. And he does not deviate from his own character. Absolutely. And I would just add to that, I had asked um, someone who um, both had scientific you know, degrees and but yet was also a believer. And they said, well, it's easy. Miracles don't fall under the... Under the observable aspect of science it, it because it's unexplainable science is meant to help us understand the explainable and so a, a miracle by definition is unexplainable and so uh, again that goes back to what I said earlier about the previous question that faith comes by hearing hearing sure. by the word and of course by experience I'm sure if we were to go around the room or online many people have experienced a miracle that they cannot say uh, was a you know God could prove it um, or, or that you could be provable, excuse me. And so I think that's, that's part of the answer as well. And I, I would also just add this. I believe that science and faith are compatible in this way, when it's true science. Mm -hmm. you, you read that right. um, uh, science, scientist or, or whatever that said, uh, you know, there's one of two options, and because Louis Pasteur disproved this one, it must be this, but philosophically I right. can't accept it. Well. To me, that's not true science because right. he's, he's actually going against what a scientist should do. And so the Bible proves true science. True science proves the Bible. And I think we have to, to yeah. stay there. And I love how you brought out Second Peter because that willful ignorance, mm -hmm. that's key. Because it also talks about the same applied to the second coming. Right. And we know how right. Noah is compared by Matthew to the last days and so forth. Well, and, and so the, the second part of that is, is um, you can ask my wife, I, when I was trying to, to, to decide how, like, how to address this, it was so hard because I had, I, I've done, you know, lessons about this in Bible study formats and other things. And so I have so much material saved, but I, I recognize that we do not have the time. It's already 744. Like the time has already gone by so fast and I've scrapped, barely scratched the surface of all the things I really would like to talk about. But as I kept like, going back and forth, I, I, it actually kind of came to me in, in this way. I could sit here and teach you, and, and I, I hope this doesn't sound presumptuous, but I, I could sit here and, and discuss with you all of the evidences that disprove the aspects of science against God and, and show you evidences archaeologically and historically and even scientifically that prove that what God has said is true. I could do that. However... I think more important than just the information, we need to understand the why. Yeah. And what I mean by that is 
God does not want us to know truth for the sake of arguing someone and winning. That's not the purpose. In my younger days, I admit, um, way back in the day when chat rooms were a thing, I would get onto Jehovah's Witness chat rooms and pick fights. Right? You know how many of those people I won? None. Right? None. Because it was foolishness. I, I was arguing for the sake of knowledge and trying to be right and not doing what I actually am called to do, which is to see souls saved. So let me just read real fast for you one scripture reference. And, and this, to me, um, sums up how we need to be interacting with those who have a difference of opinion or difference of belief. In Jude chapter, well, obviously in one chapter, in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should, content, you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, if you pause right here, you might believe that what Scripture is telling you is that you need to know what the Word says so you can go out and argue against those other people who are lying and shut them down. I've heard this Scripture used in that context, that earnestly contending for the faith is fighting against other people from, from a, a concept of knowledge. But that's actually not at all what contend for the faith means. If you go and look in the, the actual language that, that that phrase is written in, contending for the faith is simply this. It means that you are being consistent in the faith. You are consistent in what you teach. And this was written for two reasons. The first reason that he had to write this letter to the people was because false teachers had come into the church and were teaching things that were not biblically true. So the first thing he tells them is, you need to make sure that you know what truth is, that you lock it into your heart so that you are not deceived by false teachers. So that's the first thing. But the second part of the message that, that Jude is talking about here tells us the other half of it. You need to prepare yourself first, but then to listen to what he says in verse 20. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. The purpose of contending for the faith is not for winning arguments, but for reaching the lost. There's a great quote by Charles Dickens, and listen to what he says. The whole difference between construction and creation is exactly this, that a thing construction, constructed can only be loved after it is constructed, but a thing created is loved before it even exists. You see, the difference in philosophy between knowing that we have a creator who put us where he wants us, versus the, 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 the philosophy or thought that we are all some happy coincidence, is that on this end, our value is subjective. Our value only matters if we reach a certain station in life. But in God's eyes, in truth, in creation, your value was determined before you were even born. Your value is not determined by what other people say about you. And it's not even about what you believe about yourself. Your value is determined by the person who created you. 
And that we must always keep in mind because when you are talking with someone else, you must know that their worth was also determined by the God that created them. Meaning that you and I do not get to pick and choose who has value and who does not because we did not create them. God created them. And, and we have to always have that in our forethought. Whenever we are discussing anything, I am not saying don't teach truth. I'm not saying that we should willingly believe the lies of the enemy. But what I am saying is that if we come from a perspective of just arguing to argue, you are doing more harm to the lost than you Amen. are good. Amen. Wow. Well said. Well said. You know, it reminded me of a quote, Pastor Jeremy, that uh, I don't know if he was the originator, but the first person I heard say it was John Maxwell. He was at an event where he was uh, teaching in person. And he said this. He said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that is the principle of what you were just expressing or not to try to, uh, you know, summarize or, right, or, right. or but, but just to really, if, if I could put the cap on that, I, I think that is so uh, vital. Um, and so I want to take that and, and segue that into our third question. I don't know if we'll get to our fourth tonight okay. uh, due to time, but I, I feel like this third question would be a great segue from what you just spoke. Okay. And that is this. How could a loving God allow so much suffering? So this question, um, something that I really recommend that everyone do is to take a course. And by take a course, I don't mean you necessarily have to go to college for it, but there's all sorts of resources online. But to take a course in communication because what sometimes happens in this thing is that question is a fallacy because it presupposes two things. It presupposes that man is already good and then therefore how can God allow bad things to happen to a good person? But that's, that's not a supposition we should make because scripture actually says the opposite. Scripture says that we are born in sin, shapen in iniquity. That man is but a few days and full of trouble. The problem becomes that when we try to define ourselves as good in the light of what the world views, then yes, it can be easy to say, how can God let this, this person who's such a good person go through these different things? But if we use God's morality, we actually see, first of all, that Jesus said there's only one who is good, right? And that's God. And no one else. That we are always striving and pressing toward the mark to become like God. But in our own flesh is not goodness. So we don't deserve anything except for punishment. Now that's where the grace of God comes in. That he paid that price that we don't have to receive what we deserve in that sense. But the other part of this is that the other supposition that is made is that God forces man... To go to hell. And that's not true either. Hell was not created for man. Hell was created for the angels, right? Man puts himself in hell by refusing to listen to the voice of God. 
And when, if, if we could ever look back over the tapestry of our life, right, and see like our journey, what we would all be amazed to see is the number of intersections in our life where we were doing something wrong or heading in a wrong direction, even if little by little, and then God brought someone into our life or through a word or through a circumstance that helped us at that crossroad to say, oh, okay, actually I need to shift course a little bit over here. And God does that throughout our entire life. He's always bringing us to these intersections, if you will, giving us opportunities to try to be better and better and better. But we still choose which direction we take. Absolutely. While you were speaking, uh, someone watching sent this comment um, to what you were saying, uh, referencing the two scriptures, that there's nothing new under the sun and that it rains on the um, just and the unjust. And I had also written this down as, as kind of a follow-up answer, but, you know, and you kind of just hit on it just now, God created humanity with the will to choose. Um, obviously, Adam and Eve, unfortunately, chose wrong, and sin entered the world. So I thought about that recently, that if God removes the will of those who are evil, who may cause my persecution, suffering, or whatever, wouldn't it then be fair that he removes my will if I'm good? You know, and, and, and what I mean by that is when we sometimes think of those types of questions, we're, we're, we're removing the, the fact of a person's will to choose. You know, yeah. yes, everybody's made yeah. and has value in God, but we know some people choose evil. Right. Others choose good. And sometimes that suffering comes at the hand of those. And so God wants us to love and serve him. And it, it's not that I'm saying God can't stop right. those right. things. Right. I'm just suggesting that we have to understand God's not a genie that we rub a bottle and get through right. our, our three free wishes. And I'll, I'll sum that up, because I know you want a follow-up to this real quick here. I can see it in your, your eyes. Um, if you remove Joseph's suffering by the hands of his brothers, by the hands of Potiphar, and so forth, you also remove his promotion to prime minister. So Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you're okay with it, I'll say a couple comments, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I think one of the reasons that... That we, even those who are in church, even those who have the Holy Ghost, let, let's all be honest. We have moments in our life where we ask why. And it, that's okay. It's okay to not always understand why God is doing something in our lives. It's okay to not understand why it is that we have to go through situations we're in. It's okay. God does not hate you because you have questions. Where it comes a problem is, is if you take that question and let it become bitterness... And let it drive this hate within your heart that pushes God away. That's the difference. And one of the reasons that happens is that we lose focus on what the purpose of our life is. See, that question supposes that all of God is supposed to work for me. And that God is supposed to work for my goodness. And therefore, if something bad happens to me, God didn't fulfill his end of the bargain for my goodness. But scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says that he is the one just king. That he is the one who is sovereign. That he does all things to his pleasure. So that our lives are not lived in a way that we seek uh, blessings and miracles. And that's the sole purpose of this walk. We, we get those things. God blesses us in so many ways. But our life is to be a living sacrifice to God. 
And when we get the world mindset of the world that says, well, why is God not blessing me? I prayed. Well, you need to pray some more because your mindset's not quite right on what the purpose of your walk with God is supposed to be. And I'm going to wrap all that up by saying one more small thing that I actually was going to say in the last question, but fits perfectly here as well. In all of these topics, in all of these issues that we talked about, that it, it, most of the time, again, we just kind of broad strokes over most of them. We could spend so much time sitting here and debating uh, particulars on all these things. But listen to this. The world hates God. I actually heard a, um, there's, a there's a, a movie I suggest you all watch. It's a documentary if you get a chance. It's called um, uh, No Intelligence Allowed. It's by Ben Stein. And he, he basically talks about the, the almost religious fervor to hate God and to push God out of everything and to replace him with man. And in that video, there's this one small part where um, Richard Dawkins, Ben Stein reads to him a quote where he basically says something that God is, um, God is a cruel God. And Richard Dawkins stops him and says, no, that's, that's not exactly what I said. So you think like, no, he's going to say, I didn't say it like that. No, it's actually way, way, way worse what he really said. And he talks about how that God is foolish and stupid and like, all these things that I, I would not have wanted to have been in the same room as him saying those things, right? But listen, this world hates God. This world parades in open defiance of God's word. This world has tried time and again to destroy Christianity. And yet, despite all of this, God's love still reaches to those very same people. You have to recognize, we have to recognize, that winning isn't defined by proving the other person wrong. Winning is when the other person realizes God is right. Do you see the change there? It goes from me winning to show how smart I am to them recognizing that God is right and therefore they need to change to be with him not with me. And when we have this kind of mindset, it will help us to have wisdom to know how to navigate some of these very difficult topics. Let's all stand. We're going to close. And I, I just want to, I want to say finally that I hope that in, in these discussions that none of you think that I am saying every uh, uh, nuance and situation is easy and that you should always be able to give an exact answer because the truth is there are plenty of times in my own life that I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. I've had these moral dilemmas in, in, in the emergency room. Deciding is what this doctor has ordered, is that go against my beliefs or, or not? But when, the, when the, the, the focus changes away from me and to seeing the will of God done, I find that wisdom is much more prevalent in the decision-making process.